Today's first scripture lesson is from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have your Bible and want to follow along, please feel free to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Ecclesiastes is the second book following the book of Psalms, and the reading is from chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what, he, what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that, is, that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. The New Testament reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is, that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't been with us over the last month in Lent, we have been preaching through the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins are this list that the church developed over the course of history to try to summarize the different ways that sin can lead us astray, the different ways our desires can get disordered. 
We've been saying each week that sin is about disordered desire, not so much wanting bad things as wanting things that might be fine in themselves in wrong ways or at wrong times. And this is a way of describing what those, what different disorders can happen to our desires. And we've touched on a number of these sins now, gluttony and wrath and lust and envy. And this morning we're going to engage with another one, one that in many ways challenges a lot of us right where we live, I think. And that is greed. So let's pray, and then let's dive in. Father, I pray that you would be near to our hearts, teaching us to turn from our sin and trust in you. See the goodness and the generosity that rest in you, and so find uh, a broken heart sealed. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we hear his word, and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Amen. So as we've been looking forward to Easter here, I find myself usually this time of year starting to reflect on the stories that surround Jesus' death and resurrection in the Gospels. And one of those stories is the story of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Most of us, regardless of our church background, have at least heard of Judas Iscariot. You don't want to be a Judas, right? We all have some sense of that. But here's this question I want to ask, which is, Why do you think that Judas betrayed Jesus? So people have been endlessly fascinated by that question of why Judas did it. Maybe some of them have proposed Judas was a zealot, a Jewish revolutionary who wanted to violently overthrow the government. And when Jesus comes preaching peace, Judas gets angry and betrays him. Or maybe Judas was kind of a a first century conservative who didn't like how Jesus was stirring up everything and insulting the religious leadership. And so he betrayed him for that reason. Maybe Judas was jealous of Jesus, some have said. Maybe the devil somehow took control of him. And those are all interesting ideas, but none of them are in the Bible. Um, In Scripture, if there's an answer, it's actually a much more basic answer than those kinds of speculation, which is that it seems, in the way the Gospels tell it, that Judas betrays Jesus to get some money. We get hints that Judas has a problem in his relationship with money in the Gospels. For instance, um, earlier in their stories, when this woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume, Judas complains and says, you could sell this perfume and, you know, and use the money to help the poor, but that's not because he's being noble. Um, John tells us that Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas wanted, you know, some of that money for himself. And then that makes sense when you read the story of how Judas betrays Jesus. Just out of nowhere, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver, and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas seems to see this chance that he has, Um, Things are getting controversial with Jesus, and it's apparent to all of the disciples that conflict is coming, and so Judas probably figures the the gravy train might be ending, and so he goes to the religious leadership in Jerusalem and says, what'll you pay me? And they offer him a bunch of money, and he figures, all right, I'll take that, and I'll get out. And I point that out um, at the beginning of our sermon today because I think that it illustrates something important about greed which is that we often like 
to dress up our motivations in these really deep and profound and almost noble-sounding struggles. But there are plenty of times, I think, when it is just that simple, that our motivations are maybe shallower than, than we like to admit. And I think greed is one of those times. Here's an incomplete list of ways that we could dress greed up. We can talk about financial security or a good future for our kids, or the rewards for hard work, or achieving something, or leaving my mark on the world, or being blessed. And all of those phrases could mean something good, but all of those phrases can also, at times, be ways that we are simply talking in a more noble-sounding way about our desire to get more stuff. Our greed is often invisible to us. Um, we, it's common in a sermon about greed to start the discussion, to try to make it visible in terms of needs and wants. Maybe you've heard that. That's the way people usually distinguish it. Greed is about our wants and not our needs. But that's, and that sounds good, but, but really, I don't know that that gets us anywhere because, again, it's invisible. And so what do we need, right? Do we need a new car? Do we need a new smartphone? Do we need a new smartwatch to show us the text from that smartphone so that we don't have to get it out of our pocket, right? If, if only our basic necessities were met, food and shelter, would we feel thankful for that or would we feel somehow like we were being robbed? We should all assume that our gut instincts in terms of our material possessions are probably not trustworthy. In the first place, we just have a ton of money where we live in this place in the world. The median global income, which sounds, it's a fancy way, it means if you lined up all the people on earth, right, and found the person right in the middle of that line, the median global income in the world is $9,700 a year. Um, And remember, that means half the people on earth make less than that. Um, In the U.S., that number is about $60,000. So we just, you know, in that world perspective, And we're constantly bombarded by people who are also trying to warp our perceptions of our possessions and wealth. I mean, just think about this. In the U.S., in our economy, we spend $11 billion a year going to movies, right? All the box office receipts all year. That's $11 billion. We spend $12 billion total on clothing. Every, you know, shirt and everything that everyone buys, $12 billion. And companies spend $200 billion a year on advertising, Uh, That's $200 billion a year that they're trying to use to convince us that we need more and that we want more and that we should have more. I mean, television and the internet exist because advertising pay for them, right? (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, we don't pay for those things at the end of the day. People pay in order to advertise to us. And I point all of that out here at the beginning because it's just important, I think, for us to be careful when we think about greed we should probably go into that discussion assuming that it affects our hearts. That, I mean, seriously, it affects my heart way more than I usually think it does when I just kind of, you know, look at it on the surface. And so here's what I want us to do then with that recognition this morning. First, I want us to try to define greed. And then I want us to spend a little bit of time grieving its effects and then talk about some habits that can help us fight against greed. So first, let's define greed. Let's define what we're talking about. And that's actually really important to do up front. 
Um, because it's not as simple as maybe even the things that we said at the beginning there make it to discern. Um, and here's why. Because in the Bible, the material world is not bad. That can confuse some of us, I think, when we discuss the topic of greed. We think we're supposed to be like Buddhists who see, you know, all material stuff is somehow bad and our job is to take vows of poverty and com become completely detached from the world. But that's not how scripture views the world. God made the world good and he made it in all of its abundance and he makes it for us to enjoy it in an appropriate way. And even wealth in scripture is sometimes viewed as good. It can be a sign of God's blessing. Think about Abraham, who obeys God and steps out in faith and is blessed. And wealth in scripture can be a result of hard work. The book of Proverbs is full of sayings like this one. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. It's saying that the normal course of the world... Uh, when we quote from Proverbs, by the way, understand, like, Proverbs is about principles, not promises, right? So, you know, that's not saying that always this happens, but it's saying, generally speaking, if you don't work, you will, you know, not have wealth, and if you work, you can, you know, make money. Um, and none of that's evil, but wealth in Scripture is not simply good either. Those aren't the only things it says. In the first place, while wealth can be a blessing, it can also be the fruit of wickedness. So statements like this one in Psalm 37, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. You can get rich while being corrupt or heartless, right? You can get rich off of selling vices to people, and in those cases, riches are not a blessing of God. They're the opposite. And more than that, wealth in Scripture is viewed as dangerous for everybody. This is why Jesus so famously says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, which is to say that we can grow attached to our riches in a way that is unhealthy, that causes us to turn aside from the Lord and makes it hard to believe in him. The book of Proverbs recognizes this. Um, that while poverty is not good in Scripture, wealth is not always good either. Here's one of the clearest statements of that from chapter 30, where he prays, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And the reason behind that danger that all of those passages we just read are hinting at is that wealth can lead us to trust in itself rather than in God. We've been saying throughout this series that each of the deadly sins boils down to idolatry, to worshiping something else and putting it in the place that God deserves, and greed is about doing that with our wealth and our material possessions. In fact, that's one of the things that the Bible explicitly names as an idol. Jesus does it in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Personifying our wealth, right? Potentially as something we put next to God. And here's why Jesus makes that warning. It's, here's how idolatry works, right? We want something that's good, something that's good, rest or security or pleasure, the things that we think wealth can give us. And those aren't wrong things, but when we try to get those good things by worshiping the wrong God, 
it ends up distorting the way we live in the universe. And so we worship something other than the living God to get rest or security or peace. We worship money, and we worship it in all kinds of destructive ways. We worship it through endless hours at the office. We worship it through endless hours spent shopping. One interesting fact I came across while preparing this is that um, the average American spends three-quarters of an hour every day shopping. If you average out all of the time spent at the store and on the internet and looking at things to buy, um, that two weeks a year, effectively, um, we worship that God um, through all of the constant seeking and studying and thinking about stuff that we want and stuff that we don't have. Greed is what happens when a healthy relationship with our wealth and possessions gets warped into idolatry. Greed is what happens when a natural desire for things in our world gets out of order. But that can still feel hard to define, can't it? And part of the reason I think it's hard to define is a lot of these sins really are, right? When we're getting down in our heart, because all of them key off of good things. We all have to eat, right? And it isn't wrong to enjoy food and drink, but it can be warped into gluttony. We all... You know, we, we might feel angry at things in the world. And like we said a few weeks ago, that can come from a sense of justice and righteous anger, but it can easily be warped into wrath. And greed works the same way. So let me try to suggest a couple of questions to ask in our hearts as we try to recognize what, where greed is resting. First, the first test um, of whether, you know, our right relationship has slipped into greed is that we cease to enjoy what we have. We cease to enjoy what we have, which might sound funny, but some people hear warnings against greed and say, doesn't God want me to enjoy nice things, they say? And the answer to that is, in a sense, yeah. Like in our reading from Ecclesiastes, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Which, since it's Ecclesiastes, is kind of a depressing way of saying it, but his saying it's good and appropriate to enjoy the things that God gives us. But what strikes me is even though we say we're about enjoying those things, is how little time we actually spend enjoying so many of the things we have, right? I mean, how often do we buy, um, you know, a new outfit or a new tool or a new gadget or a new app for our phones and never use it? Or use it like once, right? And then it ends up in the garage or it ends up in the shed out back. One way that greed can manifest is that we make the getting of the thing and the having of the thing more important than the actual using and enjoying of the thing. Another test for greed is that it happens when we trust in our wealth or our possessions. We trust in them for our safety or our deliverance. A big part of the reason the Bible warns against wealth is that wealth makes promises that it can't fulfill. Paul alluded to this in our reading from 1 Timothy. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Money is fleeting. That's true in an absolute sense, in the sense that it can desert us. We can work and save and work and save, but all it takes is a layoff or an economic downturn, and we can see it seem to vanish. 
And money also is fleeting in the more immediate sense. It promises it will remove stress and give us comfort, but actually it just creates new problems. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes was trying to remind us of when he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, for when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Which is to say that we always think that we need more, but the more that we get, the more we feel and realize that we desire. Greed occurs when we start trusting in our stuff, thinking it offers a security or a satisfaction that we can't find in it. And greed also occurs when our wealth or pursuing our wealth keeps us from doing what is truly good. First Timothy instructs the rich in this world that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Which is that true worth in scripture, true wealth, is not about having a good balance in the bank account, but about having a life of doing good in the world. What matters more to us is the question. Making money or our families? What matters more, making money or our relationship with God? What matters more, making money or serving the world? We all know the right answer to all of those questions, right? We all, we all know. Well, obviously the answer is right. But so often we are tempted to make choices that say otherwise. This world is far too full of people who have sacrificed their marriages or their children or their walks with God or gathered worship or time investing in their neighbors. They've sacrificed those so that they can get bigger paychecks. One of the best tests of our values is how we spend our time. So I'd suggest for all of us that one of the ways we need to spend our time is on reflecting on those questions. In our attachment to wealth and the stuff of this world, have we lost the ability to actually enjoy them? Have we started trusting in them instead of God? Have we let them get in the way of doing good? The more that we see those things happening, the more we recognize that greed is at work in our hearts, which is a problem. Because greed is a lot more destructive than we sometimes admit. We've defined greed, but part of repenting of it means we need to recognize and grieve its effects and acknowledge how destructive it can be. In the first place, greed destroys the world. This is the level, I think, if you think about greed, where you think about it, right? Giant companies and countries doing, you know, sketchy things. But it's true. I mean, we blow up mountains to get the minerals underneath and level forests and millions of species have gone extinct, right, in the last hundred years because we want more and more and more as quickly as possible. And greed destroys human beings in the world. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at at the beginning of our reading When he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. That's not just a sarcastic comment about bureaucracy in its context. But what the author of Ecclesiastes means is that there's all these powerful people out for getting things for themselves, out to get as much as they can, and that results in oppression of the poor and justice being violated. There are whole continents in our world that are racked by poverty, and it's easy in the present to just feel like they got unlucky, right? (laughs) That the dice just rolled different ways. But the more you learn about history, the more you understand that for 
hundreds of years, those countries were stripped of their resources and beaten down, and their populations were carried away into slavery. And that, you know, the brokenness we see there today in so many ways is a result of that greed. And it's worth remembering when we say all of that, that that big picture stuff, I think, some people love to talk about that because it makes them feel kind of righteous and righteously indignant and as if they have no part of it. But when we say those things about the world, we're talking about things created by people like us, right? That, that those systemic problems in so many ways are really just the, the symptoms of our aggregate greed. That people like us, right, just getting as much as we can and never being satisfied, when you multiply that by 7 billion, results in that brokenness. Greed also destroys us on a more individual level. It destroys communities and relationships. We can treat each other like objects or resources that we use for fulfillment. We can sacrifice friends and family chasing after stuff. Greed spawns envy that makes us hate our neighbor and turn against them. We talked, um, if you were here last week, Jordan talked about envy, but when you see in the Ten Commandments the warning against coveting, right, it's you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In so many ways, right, it's greed that's leading to that coveting. And greed can destroy our souls. In 1 Timothy, just a little while before what we read this morning, Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is an idol. And that means that it competes with God for our affections. Jesus was getting at the same thing when he talks about us serving two masters. That there's a sort of zero-sum game in terms of our love in our hearts. And the more we fail to love God and put our trust and hope and love in material possessions, the more spiritual harm that actually comes. And that's serious stuff. Now, it's worth saying, none of that undoes what we said at the beginning, right? Which is that there is a goodness, too, that money can be a blessing, and it can be appropriate for us to enjoy what we have. Don't in all of that hear it, that, but, but the reason that it's important for us to recognize and grieve the destructiveness of greed is because it is dangerous. This world is really full of things that are good but dangerous, right? Like, like cleaning supplies and medicine and chainsaws. And we all, we all have some sense, right, that, that those are good things, but that we put special labels on them and we lock them away in cabinets and we warn our kids about them because we recognize that they can also cause great harm. And the problem is that we usually don't have the same attitude about our wealth. It is a good thing that can be used for good, but we need to have a sense that it can also be enormously dangerous and destructive and treat it with the caution that it warrants. So that's greed. That's what it is and the damage that it can cause. But as Christians, we're called to more than that, right? More than just recognizing that. We're called to fight against greed. So how do we do that if it runs so deep in our hearts? Well, something that stood behind all of the sermons that we've preached so far on the seven deadly sins is this idea that the best way to fight sin is not simply by trying to stop sinning, 
the reason that sin exists is because there's this empty space in our hearts, right? There's this longing that we have, this hole, and we're using sin to fill it, but just trying to stop the sin without addressing those, those other things in our hearts causes us to, um, it usually just doesn't work, right? The hole's still there. On the big picture level, of course, what we're called to do is fill that hole with a love for God, right? Um, that's what the old Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a positive affection, which is to say the more that we learn, the more that we develop an affection for and love for God, the more we find sin being driven out of our hearts. It is kind of the inverse of Jesus's comments about loving God and money, right? If loving money more can cause us to love God less, then learning to love God more can cause us to, to, to love money less. But it's also hard to just do that, right? To just say, all right, well, I'm going to just make myself love God. Which is why on another level, the, the way that we enter that fight is often by undertaking positive practices to seek to replace the negative practices in our heart. So from another angle, the best way to fight a sin like greed is to pursue particular sorts of righteousness and commit ourselves to habits that challenge that sin. In terms of greed... Let me just mention three habits that scripture puts forward that I think are helpful. The first one is contentment. The Bible is full of calls for us to practice contentment. So in 1 Timothy, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Contentment is the intentional seeking it's intentionally seeking to be satisfied with the things that we have. Intentionally seeking to be satisfied with the things we have, rather than in what we don't. Concretely, that means that when we're tempted by a desire for something we want, we should first ask, am I appreciating the things that I have? That when we are tempted to go, um, you know, to, to go get this thing instead, you know, it's like instead of like going and buying a bunch of new clothes, say, why don't I break out those old clothes in the closet? Instead of buying a brand new power tool, right, maybe I can do a project with the tools that I have. And it also means really seeking to appreciate the things that we have and relish how wonderful they are, right? Like instead of seeing some new cell phone come out, and being like, oh man, I can like unlock this with my fingerprint or whatever, to recognize that like the cell phone that I have is letting me talk to people 3,000 miles away by bouncing my voice off of satellites in outer space, right? Which is crazy. And recognizing that instead of wishing that I had a new car, recognizing that, I mean, already I'm like harnessing the power of explosions to propel me at breakneck speeds down the road, right? I, only have a carriage with the power of 200 horses. Woe is me. <laughs> Flowing, so, 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 so much of, so, right, so, so recognizing and looking at those things and naming the truth about the goodness of them, rather than doing what the world so often calls us to do and just obsess about what they lack. So that's the first habit, is trying to practice contentment. In addition to that, we should also seek to practice gratitude. Gratitude means giving thanks for what we are given. Everything in this life is ultimately gifted. Just the fact that I woke up this morning is ultimately gifted. I don't deserve that. And um, the food I eat and the car I drive and my house and my job, all of that is gifted 
to me by God. And the more time I spend reflecting on that reality, the more that greed loses its power. One of the great dangers of greed is that it feeds into our pride, which we'll be talking about in two weeks. But, but, um, but so often, um, greed puts us in this cycle where it gets tied up with our desires for power or for significance or for feeling like we have a place of meaning in the world. And that comes from the fact that we're regarding those things as ours. When we start to recognize their giftedness, that actually breaks the connection between those things, right? I can't can't use my wealth to make myself feel important and powerful when I recognize that it's a gift of God. It's only when I buy into the lie that that I've built this and this is this thing that I've done for myself that it can warp my heart that way. So contentment and gratitude. And then um, the third practice that scripture talks about quite a bit is generosity that one of the habits that helps us break the power of our greed is being generous Um, i think i described this in a sermon a long time ago but i've always found it helpful to reflect on how generosity worked for israel in the old testament it's actually a little more complicated than i think most people in church talk but so here's what happened um We sometimes hear about the tithe, right? And a tithe means a tenth, um, a tenth of what you earned or the increase of your land in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are actually three different tithes that God commands. First is the one that most of us picture. If we've heard that word before and been around the church, which is that every year in the Old Testament, Israelites were called to set aside a tenth of what they had earned to give to the Levites, which is within Israel, there's 12 tribes, and um, one of the tribes doesn't have any land or any possession like the others, and they're basically the people that run the religious life of Israel, um, the, the scribes and the, the priests and things like that, and those are the Levites, so they would set it aside, and then that also is what paid for the temple and the synagogues and all of the religious parts of their life. But then there's two other ties in the Old Testament on top of that, and these alternate like only one happens in a given year if that makes sense but some years you would give to one and some years you would give to the other and so on some years israel was to set aside an additional tenth for the poor to support the poor in the land and then on other years they were called to set aside a tenth for um for feasting i guess which is that israel would have these periodic feasts every year where the whole you know the whole nation would come together and celebrate sometimes for like a week and um and they would set aside this stuff to support and pay for those things and so just to spell it out right everyone in israel was setting aside 10 percent of their income to fund israel's religious life and then another 10 percent divided between helping the poor and kind of blessing and celebrating together as a community and um and it's worth noting when you say that, that that's the baseline in the Old Testament, right? That, to be generous, that you were going above and beyond that. Now, whenever we talk about that, the natural question people ask is, is that still required? Are New Testament believers required to tithe because things work somewhat differently than they did in the Old Testament? Um, and the answer to that is maybe, but also, and even more so, right? <laughs> Which is, on the one hand, maybe, because tithing... Um, Look, tithing is never changed in Scripture. There is no New Testament verse that, you know, explicitly undoes it. But it is true that the world works differently than it did in the Old Testament, right? We don't have these, like, feast days the way that Israel had. And um, there aren't Levites, right? You know, I mean, so, so it is important for us to recognize that. 
And people usually start asking a lot of specific questions like, what about benefits or is it before or after taxes? And I'm like, you know, I mean, that's way beyond the specific things that the Bible's addressing. So there's some freedom there, but it is something that it's still, like those principles at least should still apply. And perhaps parts of the actual command itself still apply. I mean, I think maybe they might, but that's, because the other side is that, like, if that's the picture for generosity in the New Testament, the ways that the Old Testament is undone is by expanding and calling us to, to pursue even more the life of Christ. Um, and I think that gives us two good principles as we think about our lives and our struggles with greed. The first is that those tithes should challenge all of us to be more generous, right? I hear that, and I am like, wow, that's hard. Um, and one of the hardest things for us, I think, in our world is giving up something we want and instead giving our money away. But that is also part of the power of generosity. It's the main reason that the Bible commands it in all of its different ways, which is that generosity isn't about, like, the practical work. Um, it, it helps that, and it serves that, but the ultimate reason for generosity is because it's the spiritual equivalent of, like, punching greed in the face. Right? Which is to say that if your heart is wrestling with this unhealthy desire for those things, that, um, yeah, that seeking to be generous and give um, to people actually undoes some of its power. Not that you can't be generous and greedy, that is certainly possible, but that it is much more difficult than to be greedy and not be generous. It's worth noting that that's actually why we as a church tithe from our budget. Um, I know some of you aren't aware of it unless you follow those things, but we set aside just over 12% of our church budget every year to give to organizations um, that help, you know, that help the poor like Rock House Kids and the Rescue Mission and to missionaries. And we do that because it reminds us as leaders of the church that this money doesn't belong to us and we're called to serve God. You can be greedy with the church budget just like you can with the private budget. And so we want to keep that habit as a church to remind us that we need to fight against greed. But I also, I go through that Old Testament list because I think it's really helpful to me in reminding me of all the different ways that we're called to be generous. As Christians, we often only think of that first tithe, right? It's just like, you know, you give X to the church and that's what, that equals generosity. And that is good and part of what scripture calls us to do. But it also includes other things. It includes helping the poor. Um, it includes giving to, to things that are trying to work in our community to seek justice and help people in need. And it reminds us to be generous in terms of just being generous with people, which is what I take as the modern application of those feast days and community celebrations, right? We might not have the feast of booths anymore, but you can still, you, know, you can still, someone's struggling and, you know, and they get an anonymous, you know, gift card in the mail from you. Somebody is, um, you know, I mean, you go out for lunch with people and you just buy them all lunch just to bless them. You, you invite people into your home. Hospitality, in so many ways, is a way to practice that generosity. And you cook them good food, and you invite them into this celebration. Generosity doesn't have to just involve things you write off on your taxes, but it can involve this posture of life of blessing people. But again, as we talk about generosity, it's important to recognize why we are doing it. 
We are not being generous just because we have to, and we're not doing it to kind of check some spiritual boxes to make God happy. Its purpose is to help fight that idolatry that exists in our hearts, too. That God is, um, God is calling us to it because ultimately it is teaching us to be like him. God is unbelievably generous. He creates this world and doesn't keep it for a personal playground, but he shares it with us. And ultimately, it's that, that generosity that uh, makes our greed start to lose its power, which is where I'd kind of like us to close for a minute, is just reflecting on the generosity of God. Viewed from another angle, the source of greed is that we have a wrong belief about God. We believe that he won't take care of us. We believe that he doesn't want good things for us. We believe that he is selfish and stingy, and then that makes us selfish and stingy people because we have to look out for what is ours. But the truth is that God is unbelievably generous to us. I mean, you know, you're a kid and you're told that money doesn't grow on trees, right? Which is literally true. But if you work in agriculture, like, it kind of does, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, I mean, like, we live in a world where literally, like, there's dirt and there's sunlight and food happens. That's, That's the world where we live in. We live in the world where what we drink, like, falls out of the sky, um, when we get cold, right, what, what we do is we, like, we, like, make a coat, and what God does is he creates this giant explosion in space, a thousand times the size of Earth, to just radiate warmth on us, that we paint colors on a canvas to create beauty, and God paints sunrises and sunsets every day. This world is just teeming with God's generosity to us. Greed blinds us to that generosity. And convinces us we live in a world of scarcity. That I have to get mine and I have to keep what is mine. And the more we live like that, the more it actually cuts us off from the joy of the bountiful world that we actually live in. We live in a world not of scarcity, but of bounty. Because God is a bountiful God. He's given us every good and perfect gift. He's given us himself In Jesus Christ, he's given us this world and all that we need. Our God is a God of generosity. And that is ultimately the foundation for our fight against greed. Because the more we recognize the bounty that God gives to us, the more we rejoice in that and turn from it to rejoicing in him, the more the tight grasp of greed loosens on our hearts. The more our wealth and possessions lose their power. So let us come together to that giver of every good thing. And in his goodness, let us find freedom from our greed. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I give thanks to you for your love and the blessings that you shower down on us. I acknowledge within my heart my far too deep attachments to what I own and what I make and the cares of this life. And I pray that you teach me and teach all of us to love and hope in you more, to be generous and content and thankful, and to live more and more in thanksgiving for the wonderful bounty that you've blessed us with. pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.